Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact, in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore, and joining the show today are the former Munster and Ireland back rower Alan Quinlan, EPCR Chairman Simon Halliday, and Wasps Ladies Club Captain Kate Alder. She joins after her team ended Saracen's unbeaten run. Plus, we've got the regular slot for Nigel Owens, and he's here to answer your questions on rugby's laws. But first... Here in the studio is the Telegraph's Ben Coles. Ben, how are you? Yeah, good, Brian. How are you doing? What a weekend, eh? Yeah, it certainly uh, lived up to all the uh, drama we were hoping for after a, a fairly quiet round five, in a sense, and, and the uh, permutations and the abacus were in full, full use for round six. I think it was vital for the tournament's integrity that sides like Quinn's was to a lesser extent because they still had an outside chance of qualifying, put in performances that were commensurate you know with what we know they can do we don't want sides going and surrendering we don't want weakened sides to be picked and we didn't get that yeah no I mean no disrespect to to Harlequins whatsoever but I think the expectation was that they would go to to La Rochelle and a bit like Ulster did earlier on in the tournament probably face a really tough French side and and initially struggle with nothing to play for and and actually that wasn't the case at all they they showed incredible fight and they and they really kept the score down, which we probably wouldn't have expected. Uh, so it is fantastic to see that, and it is good for the integrity of the tournament. And we've, it's a similar case with Glasgow against Exeter. I mean, Glasgow weren't actually playing for anything apart from pride, and, and they more than delivered that with some incredible attacking rugby and a couple of real peaches of tries too. So yeah, it is important, and, and I think it just shows the quality and how deep that runs in this tournament, which is why we all pushed for... Well, many people push for the Champions Cup to, to cut out a few teams from the Heineken Cup and, and you're seeing that in these games. Well, uh, we've got several questions uh, that we can go through. One from Ben Marvel. Do you think that the English club's poor performances in Europe this season represents a shift in the European power balance or will the English clubs return strongly next season? It's probably early days to, to be saying that English clubs are are fading in Europe or on the wane. I mean, there's a couple of things to think about. One is the effect of the of the Lions tour and the fact that the top English players from that tour are playing a lot more than than players from other countries, especially the Irish players. I think you have to take that into effect with the way certain teams have struggled. Um, and also, we had it's not so long ago that we had a year where all the Irish provinces really struggled and everybody exactly. started pointing a finger at that and saying, oh, this is a sign that... 
Um, the Irish teams are on the way and, and then we're not going to get the Munster and Leinster dominance of old. Well, I mean, based on this season, that's completely untrue because Leinster have been the best side and, and Munster aren't far behind them. So it's, it's more of a one-off, I feel, and, and heavily related to the Lions. And I think you also have to factor in that Bath, Wasps and Exeter missed out marginally. Mm. You know, had one or two of the earlier games uh, gone different ways, they could have all qualified and then we'd have been saying, well, there are four... No teams uh, from England, and um, isn't that a sign that the Premiership is doing really well? So I think these things are cyclical as well. Mm. You know, we're seeing, as you said, the traditional powerhouses of European rugby, Munster and Leinster there coming back. So I'm not uh, too worried about that, uh, Mr. Marvel. Scarlets, first Welsh team in the quarterfinals for six years. I mean, it's been far too long playing a brand of rugby that I know a lot of my Welsh followers on social media want Wales to play, how far can they go? Yeah, very interesting. I, I cannot wait for that quarterfinal against La Rochelle. That's pitting two of the most entertaining sides in the continent together and, and it's going to be a real cracker. I'm not, I'm not sure we fully deserve a, a game that good at this stage. Um, what I really like about the Scarlets is the way that Reese Patchell's been used as a fullback in the last in the last few weeks. And then you've got Jones at fly half that's given them this two-playmaker play, dynamic like we, we know Wales are trying to do. And, and it's working to great effect. And I think the only reason it works is because the pack up front is so solid. Your, your Aaron Shinglers, Ty Byrne, they're playing out of their skin. And without that, you don't get the backs playing this attractive rugby. So there's a real balance there. And they've backed up the fact that they're Pro 14 champions. I think there, there might have been a few doubts about whether they could back that up in Europe and and continue their rise. I'm, I'm fascinated by the La Rochelle game because La Rochelle have become quite tricky to predict. So I figured they would win handsomely against Harlequins. That wasn't the case. Uh, they struggled on the road at, at Ulster and at uh, Wasps as well. So th- there's potentially a semi-final there for the Scarlets and then who knows from there. It, it'd be fantastic to see a Welsh side go deep again because like you say, it's been so long. The key for me is, as you highlighted, the Scarlet's pack. Tremendous defensively, tremendous in the loose. They just need to keep that constant supply of good quality set-piece ball because with the best will in the world, although the defensive effort's been superb against sides that have a lot of attacking flair, there's only so much defending you can do and then you'll pay. And they want to be on the front foot because they've got uh, the weapons out wide to be able to use that. So I think it's squarely in that particular uh, corner. What about, we'll speak to Alan Quinlan about this, Munster and Ulster in depth, but uh, as I highlighted in the opening, huge pedigree in Europe, and Leinster at the moment look a very complete side, much in the way that Saracens did you know, for the last two years. Yeah, I think with, uh, starting with Munster, uh, this is a better Munster team this season than the team that surprised a few people last season who, who were riding on that wave of emotion after, after Anthony Foley's passing. This is a better side. This is a more well-rounded team. I think Johan van Graan's come in and that has barely skipped a beat, really, after Razi Erasmus has left. He's, he's managed to really beef up that pack and, and you have your, your clients, your, your players like that who are, who are starting to put their hands up. And Keith Earls as well is in fantastic form with, ahead of the Six Nations. He's really really put a stamp on, on that Munster team in terms of their attacking play. Um, 
Leinster are a pound for pound the best team in Europe, like you said, because they have that balance and, and their recruitment has been outstanding. Getting Scott Fardy in, getting James Lowe in, two, two really bright stars from Super Rugby and they fitted in seamlessly, partly because Lowe's an outstanding finisher and partly because Fardy's got excellent ball skills as well as giving them a bit of, a bit of grunt in that, in that pack. And also their depth. I mean, in the back row especially, when, when Sean O'Brien went out, you'd normally be panicking about who would fill his place and then when you have your Josh Vanderfleers, your Dan Levy's they have so many options and that's why Leinster I think are really impressive the squad depth that they've got well they've got home advantage but uh, out of all the clubs they could have played obviously they would have wanted possibly to uh, I think to have, have avoided one or two of them but they wouldn't have wanted Saracens I don't think they've got to face them obviously that's the way that the draw goes but um, as a losing seed mm. and number eight seed probably um, yes I think they were number eight seed weren't they they yes. are yeah um, they're not an eight seed side are they no you wouldn't have predicted uh, Saracens being anywhere near that at, at the start of the tournament and that's it's going to be a real measure of their of Leinster's kind of composure I guess to come up with a team like that who does like to try and bully teams up front Will their pack hold up? And I imagine they will. And we'll get a proper battle, eight versus eight, that will um, uh, then lead to it coming down to the goal kicking of, of Sexton v Farrell. And, and that's a script that I think we're all happy to see as well, especially even at this early stage of the knockouts. Uh, Billy Vanapola, unfortunately, another medium long term injury broke his arm on his return. And although Saracens can cope without uh, Billy Vanapola, the fact is, they're just a better side when he's there. Yeah. And yeah. that, for me, is a crucial absentee. Yeah, the way he um, improves both Saracens and England when he's fit is why that we were all so disappointed that he wasn't available for the Lions last summer is because you can see the effect that he has with his go-forward ball and, and just his presence in the back row. Um, I spoke to Justin Tipperidge last week from the Ospreys who played against him in, in that game when he went off injured and he said there was a genuine sense of, of slight relief that he wasn't going to be facing Billy Vunapola again in the second half because he is such a destructive ball carrier. Um, and it's a test of Saracen's depth. The fact that they lost so many back rows in that Ospreys game and then they can still call upon uh, Scout Berger, Callum Clark. Saracen's have got depth. But there's no one else like Billy Vunipola in their squad and there's no one really like him in, in the Premiership or, or even in Europe. He's that class as a number eight. Although potentially nothing turned on this, the decision um, in the Glasgow Exeter game by Roman Poit, yellow card, um, a lot of Exeter fans were very upset about that and Rob Baxter spent quite a long time at half-time chatting through uh, this with uh, Mr. Poit. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what he said. I don't think he was too pleased. What was your view of that? It's not often you see uh, Rob Baxter lose his, his cool over anything, really. Uh, I can see why some Exeter fans might have taken a bit of exception to it, but the, the way the play is set up, where Glasgow are attacking, the fact that there's men over, the fact that White rushes out in the way that he did, and and does seem to make contact with the ball. If you go by the letter of the law, and, and sometimes you're going to have to do that, however marginal the call is, then there is a case for that to be a penalty try and a yellow card. And it's a it's a tough decision, but a fair one, I think. And I know that Rob Baxter would have been miffed at the time, because of course he will, because so much was riding on the game. But but I think if 
if he detaches himself from it and he breaks it down by the definition of the law, yeah, you can see why that's been given. I mean, this is a difficult area for referees because even in slow motion, uh, it's difficult to tell because if you are going in for a proper tackle, your arms are going to sort of wrap around and they're going to move towards the player. If they contact the ball, it looks as though you've gone for the ball. You don't know what's in the mind of the, the tackler. You know, as a player, I know there's a split second when you launch yourself and you're not really sure where you'll come and or whether the ball is going to be there. So it's it's very difficult on the defender's side. But I suppose when it comes down to it, if the attacking side has been denied what was going to be you know, an obvious score, then I suppose you've got to come down on their side and give the benefit of the doubt to the attacking side. And one thing I would say as well is when people were now saying, oh, well, you can look and see if he knocked it upwards or downwards. Mm. Players are clever enough to know that if they knock the ball upwards, they're less likely to get uh, penalised. And it's just as easy to knock the ball deliberately upwards without any real chance of actually catching it thereafter as it is to knock it down. Mm. So, I mean, I think referees are getting cute to that. Anyway, it's time to move forward. And we can now speak to the EPCR chairman, Simon Halliday. Hello, Simon. Afternoon, Brian. How are you doing? I'm okay. I suppose that's the sort of weekend that uh, you would have scripted. Well, I have to say, I couldn't in my wildest dreams have imagined 14 teams being in a position where they could have uh, one of them, you know, gone forward somehow. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a perfect end to the pool stages and uh, some amazing rugby being played at the same time. Do you have any concerns about um, the seeding system? In, what, in terms of uh, what the quarterfinal lineup looks like now? Yeah. I suppose, um, I mean, that the primary aim behind all of that is, um, is meritocratic. Obviously, Saracens, for example, who are the defending champions, were very lucky to go through, as we know. Um, so on the face of it, it looks like a tough one for Leinster to have to deal with. But of course, that's on the evidence of the way that people performed in the pool stages. And Saracens, as we know, was in a terrifically tough group. So I suppose it's just the outcome of what happens during the pool. And I, I think w- the, the conclusion is that there are no easy games anywhere. And frankly, for, for the eight teams that have gone through, as we know, another half dozen could have gone through. The margins are that thin. So I guess there's, there's just no easy games wherever you look. It hasn't come down to it because Russing are away, but their stadium, I've never seen anything. It looks like a nightclub. It's just, I, I haven't been to it yet. I desperately want to go. Can, can you see that as a template for the future development of clubs? Well, you know, I, I was there for the, uh, the match against Munster. And it is quite incredible. Uh, it's in the financial district of Paris. It, it takes up to 40,000 people. Technology beyond belief. Biggest screen I've ever seen anywhere. Um, uh, yeah, amazing. I think, you know, the, the world of destination rugby, if I can call it that, is developing fast. And I mean, that's right at the end of it. Um, and as the, as the Munster chairman said to me, you know, it's a touch different from Toman Park. I'm not sure how the boys are going to be able to react to it. Um, it's another world. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not going to say it's all going in that direction, but uh, undoubtedly the sort of venues we're seeing now are just getting better and better. 
It's time, and it's, uh, it's Ben Coles here from the Telegraph. Um, uh, with a question on the Scarlets, uh, I imagine it's very welcome to have a, some Welsh representation at this stage after a, after a period of time where that hasn't been the case. You know, when I first became chairman, uh, whatever it was, almost three years ago, the first place I went was, uh, was Wales, and Gareth Davis took me around seeing everyone, uh, the regions, uh, meeting Warren Gatland, and talking to the whole organisation, and you know, they said, we've been through some, some rough times, but we are now coordinated, pointing the same direction. It'll take some time. And obviously for me and for the for EPCR, seeing a diversity of performance is really important. So I'm not surprised, actually, because it, I sensed they were all pushing in the same direction. But to see it happen in such style, and I was there for the game against Toulon, it was just awesome. I mean, Brian we'll know how difficult that is to play against when the Welsh are singing full fervour and, um, you know, playing that brand of rugby. It's not, it's, uh, it was a great time to, to be down there. And so I welcome it. Um, but, uh, you know, when everyone said to me it was going to be an Anglo-French tournament because the Irish just failed to turn up point, yeah, I didn't believe that either. So, you know, it goes in cycles and uh, I'm just delighted that uh, we've got such a, a, a differing group of, of clubs and provinces in the uh, knockout stages. Things never stand still. What are there any particular plans that you're looking at to uh, develop the tournaments? We're always looking. Obviously, I think uh, you know this year we've we created the automatic um, move into the Champions Cup from Challenge, and we've taken away the automatic country qualification. So you've got to qualify on on, on it from Pro 14. So no one has automatic rights of access. Uh, and, and that's just bedding down now. I think moving forward, the issues we've got, and everyone keeps telling me uh, they're there, and, and we know they're there, is the semi-final. Having enough time to prepare. Uh, we don't know what country it's going to be in. We don't know um, where and which clubs. You know, We haven't got enough time, in my opinion, to prepare for that. And also the final gets pushed around all over the place because of domestic considerations. And you know, it should be the final game of the season, particularly when you see the quality of the rugby that's on display. So there's a few things out there that we need to grasp uh, and, you know, we need to encourage our stakeholders that they should look at that and try and push for that improvement. See, logistically, it's very easy for fans and people like me to say, well, look, there's two French sides in it or, you know, whatever. Why don't you play it there? How long do you actually need uh, in advance to get... Uh, the venue uh, sorted in terms of ticketing, hospitality, security, etc., etc. It varies from country to country. Is the honest answer. I think uh, if you go back to World Cup year when uh, we had two weeks between the quarterfinal and semi-final, and uh, it was Leicester Rath, and we ended up in Nottingham Forest, and they didn't even have um, a set of rugby posts. You know, it was that bad, and so we had to move everything to get that that pitch and that ground fit for a, a match of such magnitude. Frankly, it wasn't the right venue, but we had to go there for various reasons. That, so we did that in two weeks. So it is possible, but it's a question of what you want from the Premier Club tournament in World Rugby. You want a semi-final, which, which really reflects the, the, the quality and the importance of the tournament. So even just because we can get it done, it doesn't make it right. So I think you know, we are going to have to look at it um, properly. You do, but I mean, if uh, just hypothetically, you had say two French sides, and the uh, fixture was due to be played in Wales, 
surely you'd want the freedom and it would make sense and it would be right for the game and the product to move it to France where everyone can get there more easily and supporters would be happier. In terms of the final? Well, yes. Or semi-final. I mean, the final would be the, the one that, because remember a few, a few years ago, Clermont played too long at Twickenham and, you know, they struggled to sell uh, a good chunk of tickets. The, I mean, the, the bid process for the finals is, is quite, quite a, um, involved now. I mean, we've had 18 expressions of interest for the finals uh, after Newcastle 2020. Doesn't mean that they're, you know, some of them are unrealistic, I suspect, but um, I, I think we need to, you know, the board needs to think very carefully about how uh, the final is represented from here. You know, going to Bilbao is amazing, but it's had its challenges. And uh, obviously, we've got Newcastle next year, which will be a fantastic uh, event in St. James's Park. But we, we do, you're right, we do, you know, as the tournament gets bigger, we need to make certain that whatever venue it is, reflects as best as it can on the competition and as you say playing two French sides playing up in Scotland which you know happened in the years gone by or in Ireland or something it makes it incredibly difficult for supporting teams you know who don't necessarily have the budget you know you can't expect 5,000 Claremont fans just to jump on a plane it's not so, so it is definitely something we've got to look at you see when I hear a bid process I'm sure that uh, some people will take from that they'll say oh this is all about money then isn't it who bids most we get most it doesn't really matter you're not bothered about the supporters you know if they've bid their bid is the biggest then we'll, we'll go there and uh, we don't care where the uh, uh, finalists come from well the last take the the last um uh, time we made the decision to send or to have the finals in Bilbao I think you know we do feel that if you go back in time we had a it was very circular, wasn't it? You just went from one national um, stadium to the next, um, and it wasn't particularly differentiated. So we tried to do things a bit differently, and at the same time, make sure that the access works, the hospitality piece works, you know, the, the staying in hotels, etc. All of that matters. How do you get there, and how do you enjoy your weekend? Make it a great experience. Um, but it's not just money. I mean, the principality... Uh, made a very strong financial bid three years ago, uh, but you know we were keen to try and find a venue that we thought would be really really exciting for fans to go to. Hence, appointing Bilbao and Newcastle. I think that's got to be the criteria. So you're right. I mean, I don't. But I think what we tried to do was just move away from the bog standard international stadium, regardless. Which is, I can, you know, what what uh, what happened previously. Well, Simon, we've got a. And you've got a mouth-watering set of quarterfinals, which means that uh, the latter stages beyond that should be equally enthralling. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All the best. Ben, Eddie Jones, new contract. Is it 2021 now he's gone to? It is, yes. And he said he wasn't going to do this. It is, yes. <laughs> Why do you think he has? It's... Uh... It's an interesting one. It sounds like he uh, had a few thoughts over Christmas when he was back in Australia and Japan, and he, he felt that the time was right for a bit, a bit further with England. I, I, I'm surprised by it, but I think it's probably the idea of at, at the core of, of leaving a legacy. He, he's been saying that a lot recently: leaving a legacy, leaving a, a, a team capable of being successful for the next coach, and, and the idea that he will have a proper hand on that. Now, the tricky thing from my point of view, and I guess many others, is 
who would want to be in that position where where they have someone like Eddie Jones who is known to kind of run a pretty tight ship overseeing the, their kind of development as a head coach for a season and and who who is that person I'll tell you what it suggests to me it suggests to me that it's going to be an internal appointment okay a uh, sort of a mentoring thing and one of people's both gusted and and the people we know have been developing their coaching credentials and doing uh, good jobs they can learn a lot. They are learning a lot uh, from him. But that makes more sense to me than two years out from the 23 World Cup, bringing a, a new man in who probably quite rightly will want you know, a total uh, revamp of the staff, not because of no good, but people always want their own uh, staff around them because they're familiar with them, they're familiar how they, how they work and they think they get better results uh, more quickly so that that's what he suggests to me yeah I mean pe- like you say people often want their own coaching teams and there is there is a lot of sense in the idea of promoting a lieutenant I mean the All Blacks have done it before when Steve Hansen took over um, I, I guess the only other interesting thing is that Rob Baxter's contract with Exeter I think as far as we know expires in 2020 which would free him up conveniently for that season but is it too much of a rush to suddenly kind of bring in someone entirely new and and to make that happen, I'm not too sure. And would it? And would well, the it thing in- is, I think you know, with the focus on the World Cup now, quite rightly, as being the one that you really want to win, and by and large, how people are judged, and certainly Stuart Lancaster was, it doesn't sound a lot. Difference between three years and four years, but actually, in terms of planning and bedding yourself in your systems and culture and all these sort of things. It is a crucial, um, you know, period. And if you take that down to two years, if the person who comes in isn't familiar, that's a very difficult task, I think. It's, a, it's hard to do, even if you inherited a squad, which they should do, which is experienced and, you know, has got a lot of the basics uh, right they will want to uh, make their own amendments. I'm not sure two years is enough, to be honest. No, I'm not either. I mean, this is all... We're assuming that he will be there based on the fact that England will do well at the World Cup. I mean, I mean, say there is a disaster, then there is this performance clause where this performance clause where he could leave and they could sever ties. And, and that also hasn't been made public. I mean, what if, is the bar really high? Is the bar making the semi-finals? Is it making the final? That that's at the moment unclear, and and it wouldn't be a complete. Well, the bar should be at least semi final. Yeah, I think. yeah, no, I, I agree, but it w- also wouldn't be a complete stunner, I guess, if if Eddie was suddenly unhappy with that and decided to walk away. I mean, you you just don't know, really. I, I can't imagine an international coach seeing think coming in and thinking, oh, I want to work under Eddie Jones for a season necessarily because they might want to do it themselves, and also it does. It seems as though the coach doesn't have to be English anymore based on what was said at the press conference, when beforehand the idea was that it was going to be that he would get an, a young English coach and mould them into someone that well, he I'm could actually, take over. Well, I'm firmly of the opinion now, I've changed my mind on this, that somewhere in that system, high up and high up enough to have proper influence and a say in everything that goes on, you must have someone with some hemisphere experience. Simply because... A lot of the developments that are coming from there are crucial to the game. You need not just to see them on video and react to them. You need to understand how and why they're being done because, again, much better insight into that. And I go back to the point I made 
about multinational companies, if you had your competitors on the other side of the world and you had the opportunity to get a director on board who had intimate knowledge mm. of the way they worked, you would do that and you would never not do it. So I think that's the important thing. Very quickly, the England uh, squad, no, no real shocks. No, just the removal of um, a small asterisk next to Zach Mercer's name, which is good for him and, and more pro- probably a sign of the times, the fact that there's no Billy Vinopola and no Nathan Hughes. Uh, Sam Simmons was is probably the front runner to start, but Mercer's got lots of qualities. He's always improving. I mean, he's still very young. He's just 20. Uh, but it, but in general, a, a squad that, uh, apart from being a bit short at lucid prop and, and at number eight, does look quite solid. The back row composition has been fluid, shall we say, for <laughs> yeah. a long time now, principally in the absence of what is traditionally thought of as a way a seven plays. But now you're looking to extend that because of unavailability to the eights. And it's going to be interesting how he goes about solving this because although it doesn't seem a particularly difficult thing to shift from one position to another, these roles are very different and they require complementary skills. And if you don't get the balance right, you'll be shown up by a back row who individually might not be as talented, but cumulatively, you know, work together, you know, more efficiently and, and better. Yeah, no, I agree. It's not quite the the settled six, seven, eight that I'm sure Eddie wanted when he took over that he's been able to roll out on a on an annual basis and an injury has robbed him of that. But if you're gonna have Sam Simmons at number eight, then the the debate is that you will need to have a bigger six, a Mario Toje, Courtney Laws and then play two locks just to just to make sure that you can that you do have enough gain line carriers in that pack. If you had to, if you had to pick one of the two players you just mentioned at six, which one would you pick? That is very tricky because uh, they interchange, don't they? Uh, based on what we saw in November, P- probably a Toje, uh, with no specific reason other than that. I just think his his kind of presence uh, over the ball as a six works slightly better, whereas Laws can play that athletic lineup forward role very well opposite Joe Launchbury's kind of industry and that maybe gives you a better balance that I mean Atoje or Laws at six means you, you're moving Robshaw to seven and this is after Eddie Jones always swore that Chris Robshaw wasn't a seven and, and it would deny you the presence of Sam Underhill in that back row who provides so much defensively and at the breakdown uh, but but I think that's going to be the best option given the injury to Vunapola and Hughes as well because they're going to need another big ball carry Well we touched earlier on on the Campaigns from Leinster and Munster, both winning their groups. And I'm really pleased that I can now speak to the former Ireland and Munster back row, Alan Quinlan. Hello, mate. How are you? Good afternoon, lads. Good, good. All good, Brian. Excellent. Uh, now, two, pe- two out of three at the weekend. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let's just talk about the one very briefly that didn't get there. Were you surprised, disappointed um, at the way Ulster succumbed to Wasps in the end? Um not surprised. I think I thought it was a tall order for them to to suddenly turn on the form tap and uh, start producing, uh, you know, to produce a good performance mm-hmm. because going over playing Wasps was always their good side. Um, so I'm, I wasn't surprised. I was more hopeful. Ulster's form this year has been so patchy, up and down, some really poor performances over Christmas in, in the Pro 14 derby matches and uh, a lot of uncertainty in Ulster at the moment. So some very good players. Um, Les Kiss is head coach. He's 
I like him. I worked with him for Ireland. Um, something's not right there. And the uh, fourth season in a row, they've not been uh, not made knockout rugby. So there's a there's a fair bit of pressure on them and uh, questions to be answered, really. Well, that's not the case for uh, Leinster and Munster. Let's take um, your old side first. Munster, I think they should be very pleased with the way in which the campaign's gone, but um, I don't see them quite as complete a side as Leinster. What do you think? I agree totally, and I think... um People in Munster are pretty realistic as well. Uh, it's been challenging for them with the the change over a coach, Rassi Marasmus leaving, uh, Johan van Graan coming in mid-season. It's it's tricky for any team doing that. Um, uncertainty about some contracts before Christmas with Stander, O'Mahony, Zebo decides to leave. Um, little issues with indiscipline throughout the Christmas period. And uh, the recent uh, controversy was Gerbrand Grobler, and I'm not sure if you, you guys picked it up, but there was a week and a half of uh, questions being being asked about why he was signed um, and why Munster didn't address the issue last year and shouldn't have signed him and all that stuff. So they've had a lot of and a lot of injuries, Brian. So they've had a challenging season, and I think the one thing that comes out of the campaign for me is having played for the team for so long. And one thing that I learned when I came in to put on a Munster jersey, um, it that you've got to show character and desire. And I think the current group have, have shown a lot of courage. I think we all understand that they're not the complete package. But to be in another quarterfinals, uh, home quarterfinal, with the uh, with some of the challenges they've had, I think is a fantastic return for the team. I think I, I've been drawn to the piece that you wrote. Essentially, forgive me if I've paraphrased and misrepresented you, that you're of the view, you know, if you serve your time, then you deserve a second chance. Yeah, I think. Look in hindsight, and, and this has been uh, this has been my opinion last week. Lots of people have had an opinion on it, and you've got to respect people because doping in sport is is a serious issue. Um, some people have zero forgiveness um, around somebody who does dope. The reason I said give the player another chance is because he held his hands up as a twenty-one-year-old. We don't see that often in sport, Brian. That um, People say, yes, I did wrong, admit to it. There's no looking for a B sample here. Um, there's no um, tampering with toothpaste, supplements, something I accidentally drank. He put his hands up pretty much straight away. So I give him a little bit of credit for that. Mm-hmm. Also, he went to Racing. Monster didn't sign this guy when he came straight back from a ban. He played a year in Racing. Um, and I think Monster's backs were to the wall to get some cover in the second half. They lost Dunica Ryan last year. John Madigan, Dave O'Callaghan was injured. Dave Foley went to France. So they lost about four second rows. Um, and there wasn't many people out there to sign. Now, he's a quality player. But in hindsight, you wouldn't have signed the guy with the controversy that happened last week. But now I think it's time. Let the player play. Um, give him a chance of redemption. But I would like to see him come out, I think, for, 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 for the, rugby, the game of rugby in general and maybe speak about it. Mm-hmm. at some stage address the issue and say the how and the why of the whole situation and then he can educate younger people and tell them that look this is what happens if you take performance enhancing drugs you may get um, a benefit but what happens afterwards if you're caught um, 
negates all that benefit and, and puts you in a really bad position. So um, a lot of controversy. Um, he wasn't involved with Munster the weekend, but I, I want to see him play now. I want to see him pay back Munster for sticking by, particularly his teammates last week. OK, let's move on to Leinster. Tremendous campaign. Um, however, we were saying earlier, um, they wouldn't have wanted the eighth seed to turn out to be Saracens. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think... <laughs> Any any of the Leinster fans or any people in Ireland here, um, I think any of the the, the last eight or the, the seven other teams wouldn't wouldn't fancy meeting Saracens if you had a choice, mainly because they're such a quality team. They're defending champions. Um, they did have a patchy period through December in their domestic league and in Europe. But I was just looking back uh, last week, actually before before the weekend, the amount of players they've had injured is, is phenomenal. And they're not just fringe players, they're, they're frontliners with big experience, um, a lot of quality and talent. And, and Mark McCall, has, uh, it's a fair achievement for Saris to get into the quarterfinals and, and, and the performance they put on at the weekend showed that they're a quality side. Um, if they get all these players back, fit, healthy and well for a quarterfinal, um, it's not a it's not a great reward for Leinster, but for being so fantastic throughout the pool stages, I think they were scintillating the the rugby they played, the depth they have, um, and the quality of young pl- players coming through. So, I think Leo Cullen has done a fantastic job, but also Stuart Lancaster, um, the players love him, um, and he's added so much um, to, to to their attacking game. And it's a really competitive environment, Brian. Um, there's so many young players coming through, coming out of the academy, coming from the school system here in Dublin. Um, and they have a lot of depth. Their biggest problem now is holding on to and finding places for, for the amount of young players that are coming out of the school system here in Dublin and holding on to them. But um, they're in the quarterfinals. They're the best team in the pool stages. And they will say, well, look, if you want to win it, you have to beat the best. But it's going to be a tough one against Harry's because... Sorry to look at the Munster game last year and say, well, we've been here before. We've, we've, and it's a kind of a second chance for Saracens, isn't it? To get back and maybe, mm. um, you know, get back and, and try and defend it, come, uh, the trophy again. Alan, it's, it's Ben here. I just wanted to ask you about Jordan um, Lamore. Is, is that the right pronunciation, first of all? Because I don't think we're too sure. <laughs> Hi, Ben. How are you? Yeah, it is uh, Lamore. And, uh, uh, and the fa- you're confusing me, actually. Now. <laughs> See, <laughs> this is this is the problem. Like the very minute, the very minute you said that, because every commentator in the last few weeks have been saying Lamour, Larmer, it's Larmer, Jordan Larmer. That's Larmer. how you pronounce it. Okay. And, uh, yeah, what a player, though. Yeah, well, you were talking about young guns, and obviously he's he's the uh, the only young cat player, I think, in in that Ireland squad. Uh, it, I guess. Should we be believing the hype about him? I mean, everything we've seen suggests that he's he's a real prospect. Yeah, I think from what I hear uh, from from people close to the who train with him and, and some of the, the ex players who who've been hearing stuff, you know, you see what, what you see uh, has to impress. But sometimes then you want to know the character. You want to know what the attitude is like, um, how grounded are they, how much ambition, desire. Uh, how hard they want to work, and and the answers to all those things with Jordan Larmer is they're all uh, really high on on on, on his list because uh, Gervin Dempsey spoke in the press last week about how diligent this guy is, how calm he is, the work he puts in around analysis. He stays on after training, before training. It's it's phenomenal, really, to be such. 
Yeah, he's only played four months for, for Leinster and uh, the impact he's had is, is, is phenomenal. I think Leo Cullen has to manage the expectation now and the pressure and, and Joe Schmidt. But I think he's caught the imagination here so much. That, and, and it's not Joe Schmidt-like to, to propel a guy so quickly. Now, he did with Gary Ringrose about two years ago where he was a 21-year-old and a lot of people were saying, well, get him in. Some were saying, hold on for a bit. Um, but he's brought Larmer straight in and I think, I don't think he'll start him against France. Um, I think he'll play Rob Carney, Stockdale and Earls will probably be the wingers. But I, I can see him playing against Italy. He reminds me of Jason Robinson. He, this guy, I watched him close and personal uh, at St. Stephen's Day down in Limerick. The try he scored against Munster was, you can't coach that kind of thing, Ben. Mm. Uh, pace, sidestep, confidence, Strength as well and acceleration. And uh, I met the guy after the game, calm, collective, um, very mannerly uh, and grounded. So I, that that impressed me. He's not he's not a kid who now thinks, well, I'm now with the big boys and life is great and I'm going to get a contract. He's very well grounded and, and that's what impresses me the most. Well, we're not going to have to wait long to see whether all this, I mean, certainly is a testament to the developing depth in Ireland's squad and... Uh, it should be a tremendous Six Nations, so hopefully I'll bump into you uh, at one of the games throughout that. Cheers, mate. Absolutely, Brian. I just want to say before we go, <laughs> we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because uh, knockout rugby is different, and I'm always... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a pessimist. I think Leinster are in a great position, probably favourites, but you know you know yourself, uh, guys, it's, it's when it comes down to knockout rugby, it can be trickier, so uh, good campaign for both Munster and Leinster, but we'll wait and see. It's, it's a lot of work yet in, in, in the knockout stages so we'll catch up with you in, uh, throughout the Six Nations thanks thanks bye bye cheers boys thanks bye bye time now to turn to the ever controversial topic of rugby's laws and we're pleased to welcome back yet again uh, one of if not the top referee in the world Nigel Owens hello Nigel Right now, I thought you were going to say the ever controversial <laughs> uh, Nigel Owens then for a minute uh, <laughs> how are you <laughs> Was it cold on uh, on Sunday at Leicester? <laughs> oh, when I saw, I'd be keeping an eye on the forecast all all week because obviously when you prepare for games, I, I, I always got the feeling referee was in front of me, but a little preparation, you know, in, in knowing what maybe you know the weather dictates a style of game and stuff, mm-hmm. and I could see the forecast was supposed to be rain, but when I saw all the snow coming down, uh, but in all fairness, uh, they did a lot of good work on the ground up there, and, and, and the ground, the surface itself was very firm and very good, it was just a bit, a bit slippery, it, it, it was, and I could feel that as a referee, so, so credit to everybody involved, really, and credit to the both teams as well, you know, in that conditions, it was a decent game of rugby, and the both teams, you know, took a positive attitude on the field, I, I felt, and contributed to, to that, so all credit to them, so, but it was, it was cold, definitely was. Got a question from uh, a listener, Tim Collins. Now, he says, "Did Nigel agree with Wayne Barnes that any player commit to referee to demand a yellow card for another player should instead uh, receive one for themselves?" I'm not asking you to comment on Wayne in particular, but as a general principle, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think it's certainly something we don't want to see in the game, and something that we, as a group of referees, have discussed and agreed to to, to stamp out. And, and you know, we will all have our certain ways of dealing with that. Whether you penalise the guy who asked for the yellow card, where you call him over and, and speak to him like like Wayne did very well, and give him that warning, or do you actually give the yellow card? Or you reverse the penalty decisions, and every referee will deal with it in in the way that he feels appropriate 
on that time in the game to do so. But uh, I think as a group of referees and everybody involved in sport, and you know, and I think even the players themselves, probably in the heat of the moment, they, they do and react to that. But I think in general, if you ask all the players, they will say the same thing. You know, nobody wants to see that creeping into the game. So, so yes, we know we, we need to make sure that that does not become part of the game because it is starting to creep in, you know, that the boundaries are being pushed and we, and we need to keep to those true values of, of rugby, I feel. Well, that's players for you and they'll do uh, and get away with whatever they can. That's the way of professionalism. Um, just a point to pick up on that. If you did give a yellow card, would you necessarily have to reverse the penalty decision? Or can you just say, actually, um, I'm going to stick with my original? No, well, you, tend, you, you tend to go with, you know, I would think if, if you're going to give a yellow, if, you, if you're giving a penalty for something, but then you're going to yellow card an opposition player, and then obviously that is much more serious than the offence you penalised for because you're not giving a yellow card. So yes, in that instance, you would reverse the decisions. The only time sometimes you can see maybe two players getting a yellow card, but you stick with the original first offence rather than the retaliation, is, is if the, if, if the offences are the same. So you can then judge on the one that you, you stick with the original one if the offences are the same. But if the second or the retaliation offence is more serious than the first offence, then obviously you, you reverse the de- decision then on, in, in, that, in that sense of dealing with it. So I must admit, I just want to stick on this for a second. There is no power in the laws for you to simply say, look, this is a separate offence. Um, the player I'm going to penalise and give a penalty to you is going to go off. But you're going off as well because we're not having this. Well, you, you, you could do that if you were going to give a yellow card to the both players. So you okay. could say, I'm yellow carding you and you're going because you're a fence and you are going as well because you have asked for the yellow card, but you will stick then with the original first offence you could because you would deem that to be the same as because you've had two players in yellow okay. cards within that instance. It's not more serious than the first one. So you, But I don't think it would make much sense as a referee if, if you're penalising somebody for not rolling away and it's just a penalty and then you yellow card an opposition player, you can't then stick with the first offence of just a penalty, then you would have to reverse it as well then. Well, just take one more. It's uh, from Neil Morley. Seems to be very few players being penalised at the breakdown of coming at the side, uh, both supporting and clearing out. Is this a deliberate choice so the referees can concentrate on more serious offences at the rook? I'm not entirely sure I agree um, uh, that people are doing it continually. But uh, what, can you remind us what the law is in relation to players joining the breakdown? You, you join pretty much to the gate. And the gate is dis- determined, once a tackle has taken place, the width of the gate is determined by the width of the player. So if you think, for example, two players are tackled and their head is facing one touch and their feet is facing the other touchline, then say, let's say the player is six foot, you probably have a six foot gate for the player to mm-hmm. enter into that competition of the breakdown. Now, you're not going to stick exactly to the six foot, you know, if he's coming in around the ankles on a sort of, yeah. if you look at it at a, at a V, so he's starting on the wide part of a V and coming in narrow, and a narrow gate into um, a wide gate into a narrow gate, then you tend to play on. If the player is tackled so that he's facing, and teams will coach and coaches will coach players now to tackle, so they're actually facing the try line, and then they place the ball back. So if you think of it then, the width of the gate is much narrower. Yeah. It's just the width of the body there, which could be a couple of feet rather than six or seven feet. So um, that's how the gate is determined, and everybody must make an effort to come on their feet and come through that gate. Now, 
sometimes it's very difficult to see whether they've come. But if they come from a wide V into a narrow one, so they come from a wide gate into narrow, then that tends to be acceptable. It's the ones that are coming at the 90 degrees, the ones who come from the touchline side, if you like, really in from the 90 degree or more, are the ones that you that you really you really want to get. And about interesting thing, Brian, I've been listening to you last week. Actually, I forgot to mention this last week, and um, a couple of comments as well. Um, I've read this week when people said um, to bring back rucking. Mm-hmm. Rucking is still part of the game. It just does not happen anymore. So if you want to ruck a player, as long as you ruck the ball and the player, like the laws of rucking have always allowed you to do, that is still part of the game. So if I was reffing a game and a player's lying on the ball and the player comes in, puts his foot on the ball and makes contact with the player's body the same time as the ball in that motion of getting the ball backwards, which is rucking, then that is play on. So rucking is still part of the game. We just don't see it happening for whatever reason anymore. But it's still part of the game. I think the reason is that's not what I consider to be rucking when I played. You were allowed to move players, yeah, well, not the ball. So, well, yeah, that, that's the difference. I think <laughs> that, that, that is the, the difference. difference. You know, you, you, there's a difference between stamping and rucking. No, I'm not so talking about stamping. You're going forward and rucking, you're going Well, if you're, if you're not putting your... If you're not putting your feet on the ball and the body at the same time, so say say the ball is underneath my body, and I'm putting my foot on your body right above that ball to get you out of the way so I can get my feet on the ball to ruck it back, that's rucking. But if the ball is underneath your stomach and I'm coming and I'm putting my feet on your legs, which is nowhere near the ball, then that's not rucking. So the rucking needs to be on or over the ball or in contact with the ball. And if that happens, it's it's play on. The rucking is still part of the game. We just don't see it anymore because maybe the way the games is the game have changed and and I think as well the game is so fast now yeah. you do see when the tackler is the wrong way majority of the occasions they get out to there pretty quickly or they're going to get they're going to get penalized Nigel Lloyds says you're allowed to rook that's going to be a tremendous headline thank you very much Nigel <laughs> rook legally within rook the, legally. the game remember you remember you make sure you add that into the headline oh absolutely that's fine okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we're talking at different purposes there. Mm. Um, it used to be a lot uh, more fun, I must admit. <laughs> it maybe didn't look very good, but um, it, it was perfectly safe in my opinion anyway. Sure. Um, yeah. Let's just talk about the Six Nations briefly. It, the temptation always is to take um, portents from the form of the top clubs in Europe because it just happens just before Six Nations and obviously Ireland are doing well. Um, I'm not sure it has that much um, of a, you know, a predictive quality. I think you've got to be very careful about what you uh, do. I think in terms of what you can definitely say is when you have uh, players like uh, Jordan Lamour coming in, then you can say that that squad is strengthened in depth. Um, I'm not sure you can say it's going to be made immeasurably better. Um, and I still think England you know, should uh, be in a decent position. Uh, now, in terms of the Welsh and the way that they're approaching the games, um, Big Air's got an injury assessment, Priestland probably out for most of the Six Nations. Mm-hmm. How big a difficulty is that going to be for them? Yeah. Oh, I think that's a big deal. Any Any issue for Dan Bigger... It will be a major worry for Warren Gatlin, partly because of the form that he's been in in recent weeks. I mean, it, it's been a it's been a tough season for the Ospreys, of course, and the fact that bigger 
as well was another struggler, another player from that Lions tour who took a while to get going. But he and, he and Reese Webb have been excellent over the last few weeks. So it is going to be a concern. And, and the fact that Priestland has in the past been a, he was the, the man back in 2011, but he's been a reliable, reliable backup in recent years. You have got a bit of a gap there. Reese Batchel has been in brilliant form for the Scarlets as a fullback. And we were talking we have been talking recent weeks about him being a good fullback for for Wales, possibly instead of Lee Halfpenny, if they do want to try this more attacking style and not necessarily sacrifice uh, big ball carriers in their midfield. Could he do a job at fly half? He might have to if Big is struggling and you would hope that his form can then transfer to that fly half position despite having played fullback the last couple of weeks. Time now to switch to the women's game and I'm very pleased to say I can speak to the Wasps ladies club captain and centre Kate Alder. Hello Kate. Hello. Now then you significant win 5-0 uh, over the table toppers who were flying high Saracens. How big a, uh, an influence was the fact that uh, Bryony Cleal was sin-binned um, 12 minutes from time? Um, I mean I think Bryony's a fantastic player we knew, based on her positioning in the back row, she was going to be a big threat for us. Um, but she certainly wasn't the only threat. I think we had a lot of strong ball carriers. So losing Bryony at that stage of the game, you know, it did swing things in our favour. But we still had lots and lots of uh, strong ball carriers to deal with. So um, the girls did amazingly well to kind of really capitalise on that. Um, but like I said, there, there were lots of other people that we still had to get through and over to get that crucial try. Let's move to the uh, Gloucester Hartbury uh, game uh, with Bristol, thirty-four seventeen bonus point win over local rivals and um, a starring role or certainly a contributory role from the young England fullback uh, Ellie Cadoon. Uh, How good is this girl? Yeah, I mean she, she's definitely impressive. Um, when you watch her, and we watch a lot of the footage around the Premier 15s and kind of watching the lines that she does cut and the pace that she's taken the match, she's had a real impact um, on the Gloucester team. And I think, you know, over the, the years to come, she's going to certainly be a force to be reckoned with. But from, from what I've heard from the game, um, we've not seen any footage yet, but certainly, like you say, she had a big impact. But no, very, very good up and, up and coming player. Well, there were wins for Loughborough Lightning, 29-0 over Furwood. Waterloo, the uh, Darlington Morden Park Sharks game against Quinns was postponed, and uh, Worcester Valkyries still trying to look for their first win of the season going down at home, five points to 29 against Richmond. But the Women's Six Nations training camp squad has been announced. I've got it in front of me. Can you maybe point out a, two or three new faces, rising stars in it for us? So, Zoe Harrison, uh, obviously one of the, the Saracens girls that we came up against. Uh, on the weekend, she she's had a real impact in the game. Um, her kicking and game management caused a real threat for us both in the last game. But actually, when we came across them at the start of the season, where we lost um, pretty heavily up at Allianz, so I think she's definitely one to watch. Um, I know a couple of the girls, especially um, the likes of Bluff Lightning, Charlotte Pierce, has had a real opportunity to showcase what she can do purely through um, a lot of it being the, the Tyrrell 15s league, mm. being showcased so that the England coaches are picking up on these girls who are performing week in and week out on a platform that the women's game has not had historically. Um, so I think if, if I stick to, um, there would definitely be a couple of the, the ones to watch. And what are the prospects for the uh, England women in the Six Nations? Should they win it? 
Uh, yeah, I've got to be biased, um, but, but I'm saying it's looking good. Obviously, they had a stormer last year, um, and I, I do think I keep coming back to it, but the introduction of this Tyrrell's Premier 15 is just seeing the standards rise week in and week out. Uh, there are girls fighting for, for those England slots, which is meaning the England girls themselves have got to up their game. So I think English rugby definitely going into the Six Nations. We, we've got to say yes, we've got to be going for it. Uh, Katie, that's all we've got time for. Uh, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks so much. Cheers. Almost time to finish. Things go very quickly, don't they? Well, let's just turn back to Six Nations and, and look at um, very quickly at Scotland, Italy and France. The new Doddy Weir Cup for the Autumn Internationals, uh, Scotland and Wales. Uh, Doddy's now writing a fortnightly column for the Telegraph, which is surprised I didn't know he could write. Um, <laughs> I presume he's being subbed. Um, I can't confirm. <laughs> I'm Brian. I can't confirm. Look, the, the form of Glasgow, especially their backs has been quite special, actually. One of the tries this quarter over the weekend, end, you know, completely end-to-end of the field was fantastic. Do they have the depth, the quality to carry, uh, you know, a title-winning challenge? Uh, the, the Glasgow Bears for Scotland, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I think the main Scottish worry at the moment is um, probably the injuries in the front row. Uh, the fact that you're going to have Thirty-six-year-old uh, Scott Lawson, I think, is going to be the starting hooker, based on the fact that other other options are out, and also injuries at prop. Uh, that that's the, probably the main worry with Scotland. But the backs, like you say, are phenomenal. And when you when you get Stuart Hogg and Tommy Seymour together in that back three, you, you tend to see fireworks, and and that's what's going to be so exciting. I think about Scotland: can they retain that attacking flair that, that they've already started to become known for under Gregor Townsend? It, will it be enough for a title challenge? That's probably a bigger question because we're still remembering what happened at Twickenham last year when we were all getting our hopes up that we were going to see a, a proper thriller and we never got anything near that. I think um, it's like this. If they perform you know, absolutely to their peak in every game for the vast majority of each game, then yes, that is possible. But they are still away from a, uh, the sort of side who can underperform slightly and still manage to... To win, so the the, the 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 possibility is there, and that's for Italy. Conor O'Shea took on a very difficult job. I think you can see by the form of the uh, well, certainly uh, Benetton, mm. who've been uh, very good and oh, were unlucky not to record, you know, at least one, maybe two uh, wins in the Champions Cup. I think they might be a bit more competitive this year. Yeah, I mean, we're getting to a stage where it's it's. Now, uh, no win in the Six Nations since 2015, I think. And, and you worry if, if we get another run of five losses for Italy, the calls for Georgia are only going to in- increase. Uh, the bright light, I guess, for Connor is the fact that this young Gloucester back row, Jake Pelledry, is in brilliant form and is now in the squad and looks absolutely nailed on to win a fa- first cap. And, and he's exactly what Italy need. He's a tenacious ball carrier with tons of energy who can get them over the gain line and and win turnovers, and and frankly, there aren't enough Italian mm. talents like that coming through. But he he looks like a player already, not to heap pressure on him at twenty two, but he looks like someone they can build around for some time. Uh, well, there's only so long that Sergio Parisi can exactly. you know, carry the whole yeah. uh, carry the whole team with him. Uh, and what about France? I hesitate to say anything about France, not because I don't like them, uh, although that might be true. It's not that you know, it's just the fact that. Clichéd though it may be, you just have no idea how and what they're going to produce. Now, when you look at the sides 
the top sides, both in the top 14 and in the Champions Cup and the Challenge Cup, there are a lot of players, young players, with significant talent, undoubtedly there. Whether they will be picked, whether they're picked in the right positions, whether they're picked in the right combinations, is a completely different matter. Whether they'll be asked to play in a more expanded version you know, um, of the relatively sclerotic game that they've played for, for quite a while is, is another factor that trying to do that, can can you say anything with any certainty? And if not, can you just hazard a guess? I've no, I've no idea what to expect. I, I'm pretty sure the last time I was on, I was bigging up um, Anthony Belly was the next star fly half of French rugby, and he was 20, and he was going to guide them forward. And it's about a few months later, and there's already a new 19 year old fly half, Matthew Jalibert, who apparently is going to start in the first game against Ireland, and is going to be the choice for the Six Nations. That kind of inconsistency and erratic selection hasn't gone away, uh, even with Jack Brunel kind of coming in to replace Guy Noves. There is so much talent there. And, and actually, one of the highlights of the Champions Cup has been La Rochelle doing well and backing up what they did in the top 14 last season. And they've got young players, you, you, like said, Danny Preso, the prop, uh, Kevin Gordan, the back row, Gabriel Lacroix, who's sadly been brought out for the season with his ACL tear. He, he was on the wing. He was a, he was a rare highlight. The talent is there. Are they going to be able to gel anything together in the next two years to mount a challenge at the World Cup? I don't think so. And, and therefore, I mean, are you going to do it in a few weeks before the Six Nations? Well, Probably I mean, not just the, the fact that you've mentioned um, the possibility, even probability, as you're suggesting, that a 19-year-old fly half will suddenly be playing you know, against Ireland mm. in the opening fixture, that to me is a, a strange and not necessarily wise thing to do for him. Yeah. To be an international fly half at 19 and have all that responsibility because it is the pivotal position in terms of you know, tactical awareness and so on is extraordinarily difficult. Mm. And if you just throw players in like that without... If, if he was the one player in a very settled half, you know, previously settled, you know, scrum half, inside centre... A backline, maybe, maybe you would do it, but he's not going to be, no. and they might ruin him. Yeah, and the, and the problem is that I think the plan was to play him with Morgan Parra, who's got tons of experience, but now he's been ruled out for the Ireland game. So you're you're likely going to have another young scrum half alongside him, which which doesn't help at all. And compare it to what Alan said about Jordan Lammer probably not being risked against France because it's yeah. young and it would be his first cap in with France. You've got the polar opposite, but at fly half. Well, I'm sorry, but we've uh, come to the end uh, of the podcast. We've not got time for any more. We could go on for a, a long while yet. You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. Thank you very much to my co-host, Ben Coles, and as always, our producer, Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free, and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye. Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family, as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. 
I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>